All right, all right. Well, it looks like you guys are set for, uh, for the service this morning, but I'm going to get kicked off. So the handout that I handed out to you, we've been going through church history is what we've been doing. We're watching a video series from Ligonier Ministries um, on church history. And so I thought we'd take a break from the video this morning since we got a couple people out um, and walk through actually one of the oldest documents that we have from church history, uh, the Didache, or if you see on the cover of your handout, it says the teaching of the 12 apostles to the nations. Uh, the word Didache simply means teaching. So uh, if you guys have questions, feel free to ask. But this is one of the earliest documents. And if you ever watch um, the History Channel, well, it used to be actual history, but like the History Channel or Discovery Channel or something, you know, things like that, you always would see the TV specials, uh, the lost books of the Bible, right? Like there's always something like that. And they're like, oh, here's the lost books of the Bible. Well, all of those books aren't actually lost. We've actually had them for about 2,000 years. And you know, we know that they're not actually scripture. A lot of them that they bring up are what are known as the Gnostic Gospels. They're absolute rank heresy. They were written several hundred years later. They teach that Jesus didn't have a physical body. And they had, you know, the early church had all of these documents and they read them and they went, this is garbage. Well, there's a few that are actually very helpful. They're really good letters. Uh, like the letter from Polycarp. Polycarp was a disciple of John, uh, the Apostle John. And he wrote a letter. He actually wrote several letters. But we have some of his letters, and they're really helpful. But this one is always one of those that gets lumped in with those, quote-unquote, lost books of the Bible. And it's the Didache. And we don't know who wrote it, and we don't know how early it was written, but we know it was written in the first, the late first century or the early second century. So probably think, think between like 8090 and like 8230, somewhere right in there. So this is like second generation. The Apostle John has probably just died, and then this gets penned. And what it is, is it's kind of an instruction manual uh, for the Christian life. And uh, it's not long. I just want to read it, and I want to highlight a couple portions because I think it's just really interesting that this very early document, you can see, you'll notice as we read through it, it quotes a lot of Scripture. It quotes from the Gospels a lot, um, and it, it references a lot of very interesting things. And so this was an early teaching, probably teaching um, people coming in from pagan religions, so it's probably trying to educate new Christians who came in from like worshiping the Roman gods or the Greek gods, uh, more of the pagan religions who haven't been taught um, like the Jewish uh, form of monotheism or the Jewish form of righteousness. And so I just want to dive in and actually just start in reading it. And like I said, if you have questions, I'll try to answer them. I'm not the greatest church history professor. <clears throat> This isn't what? No, this is not. This is really good, solid teaching. This is not like the Gnostic Gospels. This is, there's a lot of really good things, and I think there's a lot of things that Christians could benefit from even today in this. So, the Didache, or the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, starts off this way. There are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there is a great difference between the two ways. The way of life is this. First of all, you shall love the God who made you. Second, love your neighbor as yourself. 
And all things you would not want done to you, do not do to another person. So there we see like a restating of the greatest commandment, the second greatest commandment, and what's known as the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Now the teaching of these words is this, bless those who curse you and pray for your enemies and fast for those who persecute you. For what credit is it to you if you love those who love you? Do the people of the nations not do the same? So there's another rewording of Christ's teaching in Matthew. But you should love those who hate you, and you will not have an enemy. Abstain from the desires of the flesh and of the body. If anyone strikes you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek to him also, and you will be perfect. If anyone compels you to go one mile, go with him for two miles. If anyone takes away from your coat, give him your shirt also. If anyone takes away what is yours, do not demand its return, for you cannot to anyone who asks something of you, give it to him, and do not ask for it back. For the Father desires the gifts, that gifts be given to all from his own riches. So there's a, a, really a summary of some of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount. <clears throat> Blessed is he who gives charitably according to the commandment, for he is blameless. Woe to him who receives, if a needy man receives charity, he is blameless. But anyone is, but anyone is not in need, his actions... If anyone's not in the, excuse me, will be called to account for why he accepted it. And being imprisoned, he will be interrogated concerning his actions, and he will not be released until he has repaid every last penny. Indeed, it has also been said, let your alms sweat into your hands until you have discerned to whom you will give. So clearly the author of the dedicate is quoting something else, but I don't know what he's talking about, alms sweating into your hands. That one must be a first century reference to something I'm missing. I don't know. Yeah, alms are money, but I don't know what it means for money to sweat in your hands. So he's, he's clearly quoting something. Sounds like carrying it long enough. Yeah. You contemplate who you should give it to rather than keeping it for yourself. Yeah, and that's definitely possible. Um, but yeah, so clearly this first section, we see a lot of quotes specifically from the Gospel of Matthew. So wherever this was written, or whoever wrote this, obviously had a copy of Matthew, possibly Mark, um, but some of the Gospels had made their way into throughout the church. They'd spread their way throughout the church. And so this teaching quotes a lot from that. And it's obvious that this isn't Scripture, but it does make reference to and quote a lot of Scripture. So then he goes into the second commandment. So we've got the first commandment, the second commandment. This is the second commandment of the teaching. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not be sexually perverse. You shall not be sexually promiscuous. You shall not steal. You shall not practice magic. You shall not practice sorcery. You shall not murder a child by abortion, nor kill a child at birth. You shall not covet your neighbor's things. You shall not commit perjury. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not speak evil. You shall not bear a grudge. You shall not be double-minded nor double-tongued, for the double-tongue is a snare of death. Your words shall, shall not be false or empty, but fulfilled in your actions. You shall not be greedy, nor a swindler, nor a hypocrite, nor bad-tempered, nor proud. You shall not plot against your neighbor. You shall not hate any man, but you shall reprove some, and you shall pray for others. And others you shall love more than your own life. My child, free, flee from every evil thing. And everything that is like it, do not be angry, for anger leads to murder. Do not be jealous, nor argumentative, nor hot-tempered, for all of these things give birth to murder. My child, do not be lustful, for lust leads to sexual promiscuity. Do not speak obscenely, and do not have wandering eyes, for all of these things give birth to promiscuity. My, chi my child, do not deal in omens, since it leads to idolatry. 
Do not be an enchanter or an astrologer nor a magician. Do not even be around such things, for all of these things give birth to idolatry. My child, do not be a liar since it leads to theft. That's an interesting one. I thought that they linked lying leading to theft. Do not be greedy or vain, for all of these things give birth to theft. My child, do not be a complainer since it leads to blasphemy. Another interesting connection. Do not complain. You know, don't practice complaining because it leads to blasphemy. Do not be stubborn nor evil-minded, for all of these things give birth to blasphemy. Be meek, since the meek shall inherit the earth. There's, again, another reference back to the Sermon on the Mount. Be patient and merciful and sincere and quiet and kind and always fearing the words which you have heard. Do not praise yourself. Do not let arrogance enter your soul. Do not join your soul with a pompous person. That's good advice. But walk only with the righteous and the humble. Whatever happens to you, accept it as good, knowing that nothing is done without God. That's such an interesting phrase. Nothing is done without God. Early, early on, a lot of people will try and say that this idea of the sovereignty of God, that God is in control over all things, all things that that developed late in Christian history, that that didn't develop until like the third or fourth century. But here, right here, in this early, early Christian document, it says that we should accept everything that happens to us as good, knowing that nothing is done without God, that everything is according to God's plan. My child, remember him who proclaims to you the word of God. So remember your pastor, remember him night and day, and honor him as the Lord, for whenever he speaks, the Lord himself is there. Every day, seek out the company of the saints, that you may find rest in their words. Such a beautiful picture of Christian fellowship, you know. Seek out the saints daily. You rest in their words. Do not cause division, but bring peace between those who dispute. Judge righteously. Do not favor one side when you reprove others. So be fair. Do not be double-minded when you consider whether or not a thing should be. Do not hold out your hand to receive, only to pull your hand back when you should give. If you have gained something through your work, give it away as a ransom for your sins. Do not hesitate to give, nor complain when you give, for you know the good paymaster of your reward. Do not turn away from anyone who is in need, but share everything with your brother. And do not say anything is your own, for if you share all, thing, share all in heavenly things, how much more in earthly things? So we see this picture of generosity. Do not relax your control over your son or daughter, but from their youth teach them the fear of God. That's kind of a contrary picture to how we view children nowadays. I mean, now we try and kind of push them off on other people, but this early teaching is saying, hey, don't relax your control over them, but from their youth teach them to fear God. Do not give a command in your anger to your servant who trusts in the same God, lest he cease to fear the God who is over both of you. For he does not call men according to worldly status, but he comes to those from whom the Spirit has prepared. And you who are servants, be obedient to your masters as to God and respect and fear. So this little section here sounds a lot like the ending of Ephesians. Hate all hypocrisy and everything that is not pleasing to the Lord. Never forsake the Lord's commandments, but you shall guard the things which you have received, neither adding to them nor taking away from them. Confess your sins in the church. And do not go to prayer with a guilty conscience. This is the way of life. There's a lot in there, but this is a teaching. I hope it's a little bit clear why I say this is probably teaching someone from like a pagan background. There's a lot of things that we as Christians, people who kind of grew up in the church and kind of a Christian worldview, a lot of this probably sounds really familiar. It's probably things we've been familiar with since we've been in church. 
But this would be a great instruction manual for someone from a completely different background. Someone who's never been exposed to the Old Testament. Someone who doesn't understand the law of God. This would be a great explanation. So then the author goes in and he says, but the way of death is this. First of all, it is evil and full of curses, murder, adultery, lust, promiscuity, theft, idolatry, magical arts, witchcraft, robbery, false testimony, hypocrisy, duplicity, treachery, pride, malice, stubbornness, greed, foul language, jealousy, arrogance, pride, and boasting. The way of death is persecutors of good men, hating the truth, loving a lie, not knowing the reward of righteousness, not adhering to good nor good judgment. Alert to evil rather than to good, neither gentle nor patient, loving worthless things, pursuing a reward, not having mercy on the poor, not working for the downtrodden, not recognizing the God who made them. Boy, that one just jumps out to me when I look at our day and age, not recognizing the God who made them. That's the way of death. Murderers of children. Yep, we do that too. Corrupters of God's creation. Yep. Turning away from the needy, oppressing the afflicted, advocates of the rich, unjust judges of the poor, sinful in every way. May you be delivered, my children, from all these things. This is a vice list. You'll see Paul give some of those, if you think, the beginning of Romans or um, in, in uh, the letters to the Corinthians. Paul gives several vice lists like this, where he, he lists off these sins that we're not to associate with. And clearly, whoever wrote this was familiar with some of the lists that Paul had written. Beware, lest anyone lead you astray from this way of righteousness. For he teaches apart from God. For if you can bear the whole yoke of the Lord, you will be perfect. But if you cannot, do as much as you can. I think that's really good advice. You know, do as much as you can. Obey God in whatever ways you can. Now concerning eating... Observe the traditions as best as you can, but do not eat meat sacrificed to idols, for it is the worship of dead gods. I mean, this, clearly, this is a reference to uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians. That's a big topic of discussion in Corinthians. The Corinthians were wondering, hey, what do we do with meat sacrificed to idols? Because you probably couldn't buy meat in a lot of these marketplaces because almost every animal was killed in a ritualistic sacrifice. And so Paul's conclusion... To this is saying, hey, if you know that it was killed in a sacrifice, don't eat it. But if, they, if you don't know, don't ask. <laughs> Basically, go into the marketplace and uh, just buy meat. Don't ask whether it's been sacrificed to an idol or not. But we see even reference to that here. And then concerning baptism. This is really interesting. This is the earliest record outside of Scripture that we have for how they baptized. He says, concerning baptism, baptize in this way. Having instructed him in all of these teachings, baptize the catechumen, that's just someone being trained in the faith, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, in running water. But if you do not have running water, then baptize in other water. And if you cannot, in cold water, use warm but if you have neither, then pour water on the head three times in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. And before the baptism, let both the baptizer and the catechumen fast and also any others who are able and be sure that the catechumen fasts a day or two before. That's interesting, very practical explanation. And I think it's interesting that clearly this person being baptized is old enough to receive instruction. 
So probably not an infant, right? Probably not infant baptism. So they're old enough to understand, to be trained and instructed in these things. I, I think it's interesting that they specifically point out, hey, baptize them in running water, but if you don't baptize in other water. Think, it sounds weird to us, but if you think of the first century, a lot of pools you probably wouldn't want to be in. Yeah, probably cesspools, stagnant water. It's probably dirty and nasty and gross. So baptize, uh, the literal translation of this is baptized in living water, which is moving water. Well, clean water. And you think of any good old Western, when they try and water their animals, they're not looking for ponds. They're looking for rivers because that's actually safe water to drink. A lot of those ponds were stagnant and had parasites and... Yeah, so <clears throat> makes perfect sense in the first century to say, hey, if at all possible, use running water, use moving water. And then if you don't have access to water, that's where the practice of pouring water on the head came from. So someone wants to be baptized and you don't have the ability to baptize them by immersion, sprinkling them or running water on their head is clearly perfectly acceptable at this early date. I just think that's, I don't know, as a good Baptist, this is just really interesting to me. <laughs> Concerning. They poured water. Yeah, three times. Yep. Father, once for the Father, once for the Son. Uh, there's actually uh, some record of uh, early baptisms where, well, throughout history, there's been a lot of different ways that you can baptize, but where they would dunk people three times. Once for the Father, once for the Son, once for the Holy Spirit. That's always been interesting to me. Every time we see it in Scripture, it's always once. Yeah, right? Well, especially, I mean, yeah, I've, I've, I've had to baptize some big guys, right? You know, and you've got to get down. You know, that's hard. Especially in running water. Running water tends to carry people away. <laughs> yep. That's uh, whenever we baptize somebody in Spearfish Creek, it's, it's good cold water. Yeah, and now I can say, hey, we're just, we're just following some ancient teaching from church history. You know, use cold water. <clears throat> Concerning fasting. <laughs> it's very cold water. Do not let your fast fall on the same day as the hypocrites, for they fast on Mondays and Thursdays. It's interesting. We don't really know who the hypocrites were. It's possible that the hypocrites were the Judaizers. This would still be that time Paul calls out in Galatians, the Judaizers, those who are trying to institute the law back into the church. Uh, circumcision. That's possible that's who it's talking about. It says they fast on Mondays and Thursdays, but keep your fasts on Wednesdays and Fridays. The literal translation there is the preparation day. I guess that means only fasting every Wednesday. Yeah, right? Only, only fast on, on those specific days. But it's interesting because it's there were clearly another religious group who were heretics that were fasting on specific days. And so the teaching was to avoid... Uh, avoid being counted in with them, right? Like, hey, they're doing this on these days, but they're hypocrites, they're heretics. So don't fast on the same day as them. So even people who practice the similar religious ceremony, don't be pulled in and counted among them type of thing is what we see. Uh, concerning prayer, do not pray as the hypocrites either. 
but pray as the Lord commanded in his gospel. And this should be really familiar to all of us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. For thine is the power and the glory unto the ages or forever and ever. Amen. Very familiar, includes the Lord's Prayer, clearly had access to the Gospels. But then it's interesting, it says, pray this way three times each day. Well, we already see kind of that starting of the religious practice. And I think one of the great tragedies of our day is we've, we've gotten such a distaste for religious practice that we read something like this and we go, ooh, that's, that's vain. We shouldn't. We shouldn't do that because it's vain. But there's nothing wrong with praying the Lord's Prayer three times each day to remind ourselves of how Christ taught us to pray. It shouldn't be vain repetition. That's what Jesus warns us against, that vain repetition. But I think it's good advice to pray the Lord's Prayer. Um, when we were going through this in Washburn's church, when it said, do not pray as the hypocrites do, it was basically praying vain and out loud, expecting other people Yep. And wanting other people to hear you to be acknowledged for your prayers and all that stuff. And it's mm-hmm. not, not to pray. It's, it's a basically just, you know, look at me type thing. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't pray in such a way that you want other people to see you. But, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having set prayers or even set times of prayer. Yeah, I think, yeah, that, that could easily correspond to when you eat meals. Hey, well, we're supposed to pray three times a day. The family is gathered together at three distinct times a day. That's an easy jump to make to go, hey, let's pray. When we, when we all sit down around the table together before we eat, let's pray. And it fits, I mean, a prayer over the meal fits perfectly with the Lord's Prayer anyway. You know, give us this day our daily bread. Well, pretty easy to pray that prayer and then at the end thank god for the bread that he's given and then eat right it's pretty easy so this is interesting now concerning the eucharistic thanksgiving we hear the word eucharist and we instantly think of the catholic church right the roman catholic church well the interesting thing about church history one of the things as we've been going through the video series that i've really wanted to reinforce is Words, we might use the same words as another group uses, but they don't always mean the same thing. So early, early on, the Eucharist is a Latin word, and it literally means like celebration. It's a Thanksgiving celebration. That's what Eucharist means. So when we read in early, early church history, just because we read the word Eucharist or tradition or Catholic or any of these kind of buzzwords that we have, it doesn't mean what the current Roman Catholic Church teaches. That developed over time. The idea of the Lord's Supper being a Eucharistic sacrifice, that's the language they use that they're re-sacrificing the Savior, that didn't develop for a long time in church history. What this is saying now concerning the Eucharistic Thanksgiving is the Thanksgiving celebration. And yes, it is tied in with communion. It was referring to the act of communion, but it's an act of celebration. So now concerning 
the celebration or the Eucharistic thanksgiving, give thanks in this way. First, as concerning the cup, we give thanks, our Father, for the holy vine of your son David, which you made known to us through your son Jesus. Yours is the glory unto the ages of ages, or forever and ever. Then as regards the broken bread, we give you thanks, our Father, for the life and knowledge which you made known to us through your son Jesus. Yours is the glory unto the ages of ages. As this broken bread was scattered upon the mountains and being gathered together became one, so may your church be gathered together from the ends of the earth into your kingdom. For yours is the glory and power through Jesus Christ unto the ages of ages. So we have kind of a guide for churches on how to present communion. Do not let anyone eat or drink of this Eucharist, this celebration, who has not been baptized in the name of the Lord. For concerning this, the Lord has said, do not give holy things to the dogs. Again, another quote from the Gospels. And after you have been filled, give thanks as follows. So there's a prayer that is to happen after communion. We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have made dwell in our hearts. And for the knowledge and faith and the immortality which you have made known unto us through your son Jesus, yours is the glory unto the ages of ages. You, almighty master, created all things for your namesake and gave food and drink to men for their enjoyment, that they may give your son thank, or that they may give you thanks, excuse me. And you have given us spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your son. Most of all, we give you thanks that you are powerful. Yours is the glory unto ages of ages. Remember, Lord, your church and deliver it from all evil and to perfect it in thy love. Gather it, the sanctified one, together from the four winds into your kingdom, which you have prepared for it. For yours is the power and the glory unto the ages of ages. May grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the city of David. If any man is holy, let him come. If any man is not, let him repent. Maranatha. Amen. But permit the prophets to offer thanksgiving as much as they desire. Or this would be, uh, that word prophet could also be translated as pastor or presbyter, you know, kind of the person leading the ceremony. Let them offer as much thanksgiving as they desire. So we see kind of a guide for Okay, here's how to handle the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Concerning the ointment, you know, uh, throughout Scripture it says to anoint heads with oil. So concerning this practice, give thanks as follows. We give you thanks, our Father, for the fragrant ointment which you have made known to us through your Son, Jesus. Yours is the glory unto ages of ages. Amen. And then he goes into a section talking about teachers. And this is really interesting to me. Whoever comes and teaches you... All these things that have been taught before receive him. But if the teacher himself turns aside and teaches a different doctrine that subverts what has been taught before, do not listen to him. If his teaching fosters righteousness and the knowledge of the Lord, receive him as the Lord. Clearly similar phrasing to Paul. You know, if anyone offers a different gospel, let him be cursed. Let him be anathema. Concerning apostles, or literally the sent ones, and prophets... Act according to the gospel's teaching. Receive every apostle as the Lord. He should not stay more than a single day or two days if necessary. This is really, I I don't know why I find this so interesting. Apparently they were having traveling preachers come. Kind of like the the Methodist circuit riding preachers. I mean, early on in the church, it takes time to train up leaders, right? So 
a lot of times preachers and pastors who were trained were sent out through the region, and they would travel around. Well, one of the difficulties that comes with that is you get swindlers jumping in the mix and showing up in a town and saying, hey, I'm a preacher of the gospel. And so there's a whole list of things that they're to look for. So they're only to stay one night, possibly two if necessary, but if he remains for three days, he is a false prophet. When he leaves, let the apostle or the sent one receive nothing except bread until he finds a place to stay. But if he asks for money, he is a false prophet. One person teaching through church history, uh, Dr. James White, he said that uh, the TBN television network has never heard of the Didache. Or if they have, they probably burned it. You know, if they ask for money, they're a false prophet. Well, there's a lot of TV preachers that uh, would be rejected if we held them to that standard. Do not test or judge any prophet who speaks in the spirit or under the authority of God. Every other sin will be forgiven, but this sin will not be forgiven. And not everyone who speaks in the spirit is a prophet, but only he who follows the ways of the Lord. So just because someone is claiming to speak on behalf of God does not mean they're speaking on behalf of God. From his behavior, then, you will know a false prophet from a true prophet. Any prophet who orders a meal in the spirit will not eat from it. But if he does eat of it, he is a false prophet. Clearly, that was some kind of specific practice. Any prophet who teaches the truth but does not do the things he teaches is a false prophet. That's some good life advice right there. Every true prophet, if he performs a worldly mystery of the church but does not teach others to do likewise, he must not be judged by you. He has his judgment in the presence of God as with the prophets of old. So basically what they're saying is the ultimate judgment falls on God. If anyone says in the spirit or under the authority of God, give me money, do not listen to him. But if he tells you to give it to others who are in need, let no one judge him. Receive everyone who comes in the name of the Lord, examine him and learn the nature of his situation. If he is only passing through, help him as much as you can, but he must not stay with you more than two or three days. Apparently they had a problem with a lot of freeloaders in their day. I'm noticing a pattern here. Yeah, right? If he wishes to settle with you and knows a trade, let him work and earn his bread. If he does not know a trade, use your judgment to decide how he should live as a Christian among you, but not in idleness. Laziness is not allowed. If he will not do this, he is trafficking upon Christ. Beware of such men. That's some strong language. He's trafficking upon Christ. Every true prophet who desires to settle among you is worthy of his food. So now we're talking about the ministers who move into an area and actually stay. So this would be the pastor or the presbyter of a local church who moves into the area. Likewise, a true teacher, like the worker, deserves his food. Again, referencing back to Paul's letters. Take every first fruit of the wine press and the threshing floor of your oxen and of your sheep and give, the first, give as the first fruits to the prophets, for they are your high priests. There, again, we see that language and we instantly associate it with like the Roman Catholic Church. Oh, they're the priest. Oh, the pastor who comes in is the priest. The idea of a priest offering a sacrifice in the church, that didn't develop until later. Clearly, the author of the Didache is referencing back to how they were to treat the Old Testament priests. They should kind of take those principles from the Old Testament and apply them to how they're to treat their pastor, right? So the priest was to be cared for by the people, provided for by the people. He was to be paid from the people. And so they are to treat them as their high priest. But if you do not have a prophet, 
Give your first fruits to the poor. So just because there's no minister in your town, it is not an excuse not to take up offering as a church and give to those in need. If you make bread, take the first fruits and give according to the commandment. Likewise, when you open a jug of wine or oil, take the first fruit and give to the prophets. And so with money and clothing and every possession, take the first fruit as it seems appropriate to you and give according to the commandment. Gather together each Sunday. That's interesting. So early on, we have reference to the church gathered together every Sunday. So gather together each Sunday, break bread, and give thanks. First, confessing your sins that your sacrifice may be pure. Using that similar language to Philippians and elsewhere, that the, the sacrifice of joy. And let no man, having a disagreement with his brother, join you until they have been reconciled that your sacrifice may not be defiled. For it was this sacrifice that was spoken of by the Lord in every place and at every time offer me a pure sacrifice. For I am a great king, says the Lord, and my name is wonderful among the nations. So that's similar to teaching from Christ, where he said, hey, if you bring your offering and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering at the altar and go and reconcile. Clearly, they're trying to apply this in life. Concerning church leaders, appoint for yourselves bishops and deacons, or a pastor, or pastors and deacons. We see a plurality of bishops. Bishops and pastors kind of interchangeable. So we see a plurality of elders, and then deacons, deacons who are the table servants, who are worthy of the Lord, men who are meek and not lovers of money, who are honest and proven. For they also perform the service of prophets and teachers. Therefore, do not hold them in contempt, for they are honorable men, along with the prophets and teachers. Reprove one another, not in anger, but in peace, as you find in the gospel. Shun anyone who has sinned against his neighbor, and do not say a word to him until he repents. But say your prayers, and give your alms, and do everything according to the gospel of the Lord. And we have this final section, the Lord is coming, watch over your life. Do not let your lamps burn out. That's interesting phrasing. Everybody wants to try and say that Revelation was written very late, you know, and it wasn't accepted as scripture. The book of Revelation was, you know, oh, that was a big question. Is the book of Revelation canonically scripture? Well, clearly, the author of the Didache is quoting the beginning of Revelation when Jesus is speaking to the churches. Do not let your lamps burn out, nor your waist be ungirdled, but be ready, for you do not know when our Lord is coming. And gather together frequently, seeking what is necessary for your souls, for all your years of faith will count for nothing unless you are perfected in the last days. In the last days, false prophets and corruptors will multiply, and the sheep will turn into wolves, and love will be turned into hate, and lawlessness will increase, men will hate and persecute and betray one another, and then the deceiver of the world will appear as a son of God, and will do signs and wonders, and the earth will be delivered into his hands. He will commit abominations which have never been seen since the world began. Then all mankind will come to the fire of testing, and many will fail and perish. But those who endure in their faith will be saved by him who was accursed. And then, then shall the signs of the truth appear. First, a sign of a rift in the heaven, then a sign of a voice of a trumpet, and thirdly, the resurrection of the dead. Yet not of all, but as it was said, the Lord shall come and all his saints with him. Then shall the world see the Lord coming upon the clouds of heaven with power and dominion to repay each man according to his works with justice before all men and the angels. 
Amen. So, not scripture, but an early, early teaching of the early church. Like I said, probably around 980, 95 to 230, somewhere in there, really early on. Clearly an influential teaching, and it references a lot of scripture. So, not scripture, but very helpful. So, what were your thoughts? Yeah, now you can say, you know, if you ever, if you ever see one of those you know, the lost books of the Bible, you know, or someone talking about the Didache, you can say, hey, I've actually read the Didache. And you know what? It's, it's all right. <laughs> it's pretty good. There's really nothing outlandish. It's really taking a bunch of scriptural principles and trying to apply them to life, right? Like this was clearly when we got to the section about the catechumen or those being trained, you know, talking about who to baptize and everything, the instructions for those. You know, it says to, uh, for those being baptized, having instructed them in all of these teachings. Well, that seems to reference that this was probably a teaching that they took new Christians through. Hey, you want to learn about the church? You want to learn about Christianity? Here, let's go through this kind of condensed teaching that references a lot of the Gospels, that references how we're supposed to live, what we're supposed to do. Okay, you're saved. How are you supposed to live? Well, here's this guide. That seems to be clearly what it was meant for. It was a guide for how to live, especially when you get into all the dealing with teachers and everything, you know, these traveling kind of evangelist-type people who are traveling around, and apparently there were a lot of swindlers among them. Yeah, you know, hey, they were wanting to set up camp and stay with them for a long time. They're like, nope, only two days most. And if they stay longer than two days, they're a false teacher. I'm like, Wow. They must have really had a problem with this. So yeah, I just think it's, it's interesting. Yeah, I think it's, a, it's an interesting teaching. It's interesting to know how the early church applied a lot of the scripture. One of the things that's most fascinating to me is uh, skeptics will always try and you know, question the authority of scripture by questioning, well, the early church didn't have the Bible. Well, it really depends on what you mean. When someone makes a statement like that, like, did they have all 66 books bound up in one edition like this? No, they clearly they didn't, but they had the Old Testament scrolls. So a lot of them, there's clearly a lot of teaching from the Old Testament in here. But obviously, at this really early date, they had at least just just from what's written in here, we can put together that they had at least Matthew, probably a couple of the other Gospels, likely maybe Mark, possibly John. Um, there's reference to Jesus being like uh, the priest, you know, so that possibly Hebrews. They could have had Hebrews. Um, Revelation is clearly acceptable. Uh, pretty much direct quotes from Ephesians and Philippians and both letters to the Corinthians. So the early church might not have had all of these books put together at once, but clearly whoever wrote this at a really early date had at least those. They had at least the Gospels. Um, several of Paul's letters, probably Hebrews, and John's Revelation. That's a decent chunk of the New Testament for such an early date, considering the, the New Testament probably wasn't finished until AD 90, like AD 65 to 90, somewhere in there was when it was done being written. And then you got to think, how did they get these letters? Well, they had to be sent around to different churches, and you couldn't just email them. You couldn't fax them over to people. Well, that's old technology now, too. But, you know, you had to hand copy these letters. 
You had to hand scribe the different letters, you know, to like the Ephesians. In Colossians, Paul says, uh, at the end of Colossians, he says, hey, when you receive the letter or, or send this letter to Laodicea, and when you receive the letter from Laodicea, follow it, basically. So clearly they were scribing these letters, hand scribing these letters, and sending them to the different churches. Aww. Poor buddy bonked his head. I heard a thud and then a cry. You okay, buddy? <laughs> so, I mean, it takes time to hand scribe letters, and then you've got the distribution of this, uh, you've got the persecution of Rome. One of the things the Romans did was they were actively seeking scripture to try and destroy it. You know, that was one of the ways that they were persecuting the church is they would, were trying to find the Christian scriptures and destroy them. So you got to be careful how you send things. So the fact that this early on there's reference to so much of the New Testament is just fascinating. And it's a nail in the coffin of so many people's arguments of, well, the Bible's not reliable because it you know, well, the, it wasn't written until 300, or the Bible didn't come together until 325. They always say the Council of Nicaea. The Bible was put together at the Council of Nicaea. They didn't even talk about the canon of Scripture at the Council of Nicaea. That wasn't what they talked about at all. But, I don't know, you get people, people get it in their heads, and, well, that's why the Bible's not reliable. Well, clearly, as early as, like, the 90s, they had a decent chunk of the New Testament being spread around the churches. So I think that's encouraging for the faith. I think there's a lot of good teaching in this. And now if anyone says, well, you know, the Didache should have been in Scripture, you can say, I've actually read the Didache. How much value do we put on the Didache for Scripture? Uh, it is not as authoritative as Scripture. It's interesting, and I think it's good teaching. Where it's beneficial, you should probably follow it. Where it's not, let it pass. Okay. It's kind of a... Put the, same, put the same value on it that you would put on a commentary or on a good book from a Christian author, like a good, solid book on Christian living. So, like, if you picked up a book from Charles Spurgeon on Christian living, there's a lot of helpful stuff in there. Spurgeon quotes a lot of scripture. Really good information. It's not scripture. Where it lines up with it, follow it. Yeah. Yeah, you can go ahead and fast on Monday if you want. So yeah, any questions? I just thought it was interesting as we were kind of moving into some church history. I was like, well, this is nice and short, short, sweet, and pretty simple. Let's, uh, let's just read it. So yeah, well, I will pray for us before we move into our time of worship. Our gracious Father, Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the amazing record of those who are faithful who have gone before us. Lord, I thank you for just the benefit of studying history, of knowing some of this history. We know it's not scripture. It's not authoritative like scripture, but it is helpful. And I, and I think it's encouraging for us, Lord. It's encouraging for us to know that even 2,000 years ago, Faithful men and women truly sought to live this out. May we be faithful and may we pass our faith on to the next generation as they did to their next generation and so on down to us. And may we be grateful for the legacy of faith that we have. I pray that you'd be with us as we go into our time of worship. And 
pray that you would just speak to us through your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.